0: Welcome to the Exchange Podcast by EWL. As advisors to some of the most successful families in the country, Craig Emanuel, Tim Wyburn, and I, Ryan Lure, draw upon some of the best minds in the country. We believe that by exchanging ideas, we can deliver better advice and better outcomes for the families we work for. Now, we're inviting you on this journey. In this podcast, we interview some of the country's best investment managers, business advisors, bankers, and founders to share their valuable insights. And our hope is that with better information comes better decisions, helping you to achieve more financially. Welcome to another episode of The Exchange. My name is Ryan Lur, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the great pleasure of speaking with Jeremiah Lane, a partner and senior member of KKR's Traded Credit Investment Team. Jeremiah joined KKR in 2005. He's a portfolio manager for KKR's Leveraged Credit Funds and Portfolios and a member of the US Traded Credit Investment Committee and also KKR's Credit Portfolio Management Committee. Before joining KKR, Mr. Lane worked as an associate in the Investment Banking and Technology Media and Telecom Group, JP Morgan Chase and holds an AB with honors in history from Harvard University. For those that don't know, KKI is one of the largest, most reputable private asset managers globally, responsible for over $519 billion in assets, with over 2,500 employees across 24 offices, and $27 billion of staff or firm capital is invested alongside investors in the same products and that alignment is always key. So Jeremiah, just to start, can you talk about how and why the KKR platform gives you and gives investors a distinct advantage in this asset class? Sure. I think
1: that one of the things that we talk about firm wide is our one firm approach. And really this gets at the goes all the way back to when KKR originally set up a credit business in 2004 and we made a decision very different than all of our peers all of our peers elected to set up siloed investing businesses where credit executives were, would win and, win and lose on the basis of just credit outcomes. Private equity executives would win or lose just based on private equity outcomes. We chose what we call the one-firm model. Everybody is incentivized based on the outcomes that KKR delivers as a whole. And we are compensated based on the success or failure of different parts Mm. of the business across the firm. And that makes us economically incentivized to both contribute to other strategies that we have within KKR and to ask for executives and other strategies to contribute to us. And so where we really see this show up in our business is around diligence. Mm. And we'll be looking at a a business that might be new to us. Literally hundreds or in some years, thousands of times, we will do wall crosses. We sit on the public side of a Chinese wall. We'll do wall crosses to private equity executives, private credit executives, capital market executives to ask for their perspective Mm. on specific companies that we're analyzing Industries that we're investing in that we haven't been active in before, maybe maybe perspective on, on the management teams mm. of companies that we're investing behind, and perspective on the partners and other private equity firms that are maybe backing these businesses that we're investing in. And we find that differentiated angle, that differentiated diligence mm. that we're able to get through being a part of KKR and the one firm approach mm. to just consistently add at the margin. A lot of times those conversations, the best ones are when we talk to them and we don't make an investment Mm. because it looks like a good company to us. And and we get on the phone with our partners in other parts of the business. And they say, well, we see actually a a risk lurking in this part of the market. And so I think that's been the the biggest uh, differentiator. We also have a lot of support from the balance sheet. It's helped us scale our business. This is a business where scale really matters. You want to not only be a part of a syndicate when you're investing in a loan or a bond but you want to mm-hmm. be a large part of the syndicate if you're a large part of the syndicate management teams have more will give you more time will give you more access to yeah. for conversations private equity teams view you as a more significant partner when you have a problem in the portfolio And inevitably with the large portfolios that we're managing and changing macroeconomic conditions we we will sometimes have problems you want to be big because being big means that you have a seat at the table and means that you can get a really differentiated outcome Yeah, um, in terms of how the situation is resolved.
0: Yeah, look, you just answered my next question, which was going to be wider scale matter in this asset class. And I guess given you've already partially answered that, I mean, who would be the competitors to, to KKR? I mean, who would have kind of the similar level of scale? And I guess there's not the volume of of those competitors as opposed to those participating in smaller deals, smaller private lending or other types of transactions. Yeah, look, I think that I think that the large alternative managers,
1: Blackstone, Carlisle, Apollo, those are all competitors that have scale and credit. I think that that when I think about the one firm model mm-hmm. that I already talked about that's a really significant differentiator to the strategies that those other firms have, have pursued. Mm -hmm. And we have a depth of integration that I think is just, is just unmatched. So other players will come with, with scale. They will have a a similar amount of, you know, holdings and the Mm -hmm. loans or the bonds that we're investing in. But we, we really feel like having that, that edge on, on diligence on ability to understand just, the durability of cash flow downside protection mm. these businesses that we're investing in we really feel like that gives us a big advantage and and we've seen that show up as names that we pass on it seems mm. that we've seen it show up as names that we really lean into that the market doesn't like we see it as a valuable differentiator
0: yeah absolutely i guess for our listeners before we we dive into things global traded credit liquid credit high-yield bonds, bank loans, structured credit, opportunistic credit. I mean, these are terms that probably don't resonate as much as more vanilla fixed income for a lot of listeners. So can you provide, I guess, a bit of a summary of what are these instruments, where do they sit in terms of the capital structure? Is this conception or misconception warranted that these are all higher-risk, lower-quality instruments? I mean, give us, a, I guess, a bit of a flavour. And perspective for what they are and why they're potentially attractive.
1: Sure. I think I think what I'd start with is that even though these are markets that people are less familiar with, these are big markets. Mm. US bank loans outstanding over a trillion dollars, US high yield outstanding over a trillion dollars. And they are highly liquid markets. Mm. You can regularly trade when we're ramping a portfolio for a new client. We will regularly trade hundreds of millions mm. of dollars in a day. Mm. So these are these are big markets and they are very liquid markets. A bank loan that we would hold in the portfolio is typically originated by a bank, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, et cetera. They put together a syndicate and mm. we'll be a part of that syndicate a new issue that after it is offered to the market it actively trades mm. and for performing loans we see them regularly trade right around par mm. 100 cents on the dollar except for you know periods where there's a significant disruption in the market obviously with covid we had yeah. a significant disruption over the last couple of years we had a significant disruption with this the huge changes in mm. fed policy mm. High-yield bonds are actually maybe just rounding out bank loans. Bank loans are almost always senior secured, Mm. So tippy top of the capital structure with a security interest in the assets of the company. Having that security interest in the assets is incredibly important and valuable. When companies run into trouble, you want to make sure that you have a claims on specific assets to make sure that you're first in line if a company has any challenges. A high-yield bond comes to market in the same way. There'll be an underwriting bank. The same Mm. banks dominate the market for for high-yield bonds. It is much less common for high-yield bonds to be secured. Mm. We do see secured bonds as becoming a larger part of the market, but more typically, bonds are unsecured. Mm. So they sit at a more junior spot in the capital structure. One of the interesting differences that's developed in these two markets over the last handful of years is that private equity owners of businesses have tended to prefer the loan market, mm. and so we see fewer private equity backed businesses in the bond market. The big public companies that are sub investment grade that are, are ranked below that means ranked below triple B, mm. rated below triple B by you know Moody's and S and P those big public companies have tended to prefer high-yield bonds. Mm-hmm. And so we see some differentiation in terms of the composition of the issuer base. Mm-hmm. These are markets that, like as I said, over a trillion dollars in size, highly liquid. They also have somewhat different buyer basis mm. in the loan market you have a very large percentage of the overall loan market is owned by a specialized structured credit vehicle called a clo mm. in the bond market it's more typical that bonds are owned by insurance companies pension funds and individual investors and what, one of the things that we really like about these markets is that many of the investors in both loans and bonds leverage loans and high yield bonds have what I describe as high amount of rules based activity, and so as an example, in CLOs, CLOs are allowed to hold a small number of lower rated mm. uh, loans, and so when a loan gets downgraded from B three to triple C, as an example, um, all of a sudden it becomes much less attractive for a CLO mm. to hold, and all of a sudden the price goes down, and you see. A number of CLOs begin to offer the loans, mm. and we think that that's a really interesting opportunity to just do more work. Yeah, we don't necessarily want to own the loan, but if we do more work and we do our wall cross to talk to private equity executives and private credit executives and gain a high degree of conviction mm. that there's durability of cash flow and downside protection in the loan. Then that's an incredible opportunity. It's traded down just because an analyst at Moody's or SP has said, we now assign these letters instead of yeah. these other letters. It's now just worth less. And that's an opportunity for us to, to step in. We see similar areas of, of kind of discontinuity in, in high yield bonds from triple B to double B. A huge number of insurance companies have a lot of sensitivity around owning things that are triple B and not owning things that are double B. That's Mm. a a consistent continuity in the market. And similarly between single B and triple C. And so one of the things that we really love about these markets is this rules-based activity, which we feel like is, is a structural opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to take advantage of Mm. again and again and again, provided that the businesses that we're investing in meet our criteria For
0: durability of cash flow and outside protection. That's a helpful, helpful overview. I think one of the points that you touched on, which I'd like to unpack a little bit more, you mentioned periods of dislocation and how it impacts credit markets. And clearly, first, as you mentioned, we had COVID, then we had a much more aggressive Fed, central banks globally through 2022 and some part of 2023. Regional banks had their issues. So, how have these events, how have the macroeconomic conditions really impacted? as you said, appetite for different parts of the credit market and what opportunities does that present investors? One really interesting issue
1: that arises from COVID is that most most loans and bonds are offered to the market with a three-year look back in financial performance. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that at the start of 2024, if you got a three-year look back, There's almost no value in that data because you have 2020, which is a period of massive dislocation. You have 2021, which was a a huge rally, a boom for many businesses. You have 2022, which is a hangover. And and now you have 2023, which Mm. would appear to be a more normalized period. But you you really can't discern much trend Mm. from those three or four years. I think that one thing that's arisen from COVID and the policy response to COVID is that it's actually harder to diligence businesses now Mm. than it was in, say, 2019. When you look back and you would say, okay, I have 16, 17, 18, 19. 16 was a a tough year in the US with a lot of issues around energy. But then 17, 18, 19, those were pretty normal years. Mm. And then if you really had a longer look back, you could go Mm. back to... 2011, 2012, and have you know, be able to really establish trend line. One issue that's that's come up is that it's much more difficult to diligence businesses. And that's actually, I think, a big structural advantage for us mm. um, because we've been in business now for almost 20 years. And we've uh, effectively accumulated a database mm. of financial performance for many of these companies over really long periods of time. Another thing that I would say I hear a lot from investors is, are you worried about Recession? Are you mm. worried about the macroeconomic outlook dimming? And our response to that has really been that we, we think there's already a recession happening. Mm. It's just it's a rolling recession, and so instead of having this single moment mm. where many sectors are cycling together um, as a result of COVID, you've had you've had individual sectors cycling asynchronously, mm. and so. The examples of of a handful of sectors that I like to use are consumer businesses that in the U.S. primarily manufacture in China and import via ship. Those businesses had a collapse in profitability at the end of 21 and beginning of 22 because the cost to ship Mm. went up so dramatically in a very short period of time. And that really hit them throughout 2022. And 23 has already been a story of of real recovery in those markets focusing, moving out of 21 and into 22, in the second half of 22, and I'd say really throughout 23, healthcare Mm. had a huge number of problems, really uh, driven by a shortage of nurse labor. Mm. Service providers that were labor-intensive business models Mm. had poor ability to fully staff their facilities. And when they did fully staff their facilities, they were really having to pay up. Yeah. Um, and if you had a lot of people in and were having to pay up for that labor, it really crushed your margins. Mm. We're starting to see signs of normalization um, there. In '23, we saw a lot of a couple of industries going through destocking. So these were businesses that had kind of boomed in '21 and continue to show strength in '22, and now our end market demand is lower, and so they're going through a destocking cycle. I would call out chemicals and packaging yeah. as two businesses like that. And looking forward to 24, probably the sector that we're watchful on. I wouldn't say we're calling it as necessarily cycling, but that we're very watchful on is housing. Mm. Housing has been surprisingly robust despite the huge increase in rates. And I, I think that that's really been driven by the strong backlog that mm. the building uh, businesses came into the rate increase with. At this point, they've really burned through that backlog, and so I think the question is going to be: Can they can they refill their order book mm. when cost six and a half percent to you know, borrow the money to buy the home mm. in the way that they were able to do when it was much lower? Mm. And so, housing is is the sector that we're we're watchful of for twenty four. But I think the picture that emerges is that these cycles are happening yeah and it's not it's not that everything is going along smoothly for every company individual sectors are cycling it's just that they're cycling asynchronously and that and that's the reason why it doesn't become a recession but businesses are getting disrupted and that's an opportunity for us to take advantage of the knowledge yeah. differential that we have as part of KKR with the one firm approach roll up our sleeves do the work figure out if there's durability of cash flow and make an investment or not.
0: I mentioned earlier that I was at an advisor conference, an invite-only advisor conference with roughly 100 other wealth firms last week. And we have roundtable discussion and speaking about fixed income, credit markets, private debt. The trend consistently seemed to be that if you think about the macro challenges, you've got companies with higher debt, higher interest rates, or if we are in a higher for longer regime, then clearly defaults will go up. And you know, back to my point earlier, I think if we talk about, say, high yield as an example. There can be this mis- misconception that high yield is always high risk. And in an environment where you've got challenging or deteriorating macroeconomic conditions, why would you want to be in the high risk category? But to your point, I think it's much more nuanced than that and if you do the due diligence, you can uncover plenty of opportunities that are largely unappreciated and reading through KKR's annual report, Last night on credit markets titled credit vintage to remember, which I thought was, was clever looking at high yield. Most people wouldn't expect now that in the US, roughly half of the high yield market or 50% sits at double B, one rank below investment grade. And in Europe, I think the figures higher at 60%. So in response to the roundtable discussion that basically consensus is that you're not getting a wide enough credit spread for high yield, so you're better off being in investment-grade corporates or other parts of the market. I found that really interesting. And at the same time, while many have that view, private debt, private credit also seems to be incredibly popular at the moment. But yet, you've got parts of liquid markets that are offering a similar level of return, a lot more transparency, perhaps hard assets securing them. And I think, again, Another point that you made, Jeremiah, is around differences in vintage. Clearly, some of the instruments or securities that were offered through 2020, 2021, uh, compared to some that have been issued more recently, there's a big divergence in quality. So, I mean, what's your perspective? And I guess if consensus out there is that you don't want to be in high yield or you don't want to be in these other asset classes that people are less familiar with. I mean, what's the counter argument? I think that where I would start
1: is... I think comparing traded credit to private credit, as an example, I think the story around private credit has really been one where the private credit businesses have been able to lend to larger companies at still very wide spreads. And my view is that that's largely over. That there there was a moment in time where they were able to do that through 2023. Because the traded credit markets were so disrupted, because as you said, it was a vintage to remember. Yeah. We were, we were using this tagline last year kind of, it's a great time to be a lender. It was a great time to be a lender in 2023 mm. because the traded credit markets were disrupted. And so if you were, if you were making a new loan or buying a new bond, mm. the borrower had to really pay up mm. and they had to agree to, Tighter credit documentation Mm. and better provision of information, Mm. everything. And what we've seen this year or what we saw, I'd say, in the later part of 23 and into this year is that as the traded credit markets have healed, those higher quality big businesses, Mm. they're going to prefer to finance themselves in the traded credit market at a little Mm. bit tighter spread Mm. because it saves them money. And ultimately, that's that's a big priority for them. And so I, I do think that we've started to now see a real trend where... We're even seeing some financings that were put in place in the private markets. Last year, we're seeing them now get refinanced out Mm. into trading credit at substantially tighter credit spreads. With respect to to are you you getting paid enough? I think what's interesting is that in trading credit, maybe it's a a function of the transparency of the Mm. spread. Mm. I can literally say that at all times, I've had investors argue to me that you sh- they should be getting paid more, uh, <laughs> and so we see spreads today as normal mm-hmm. when you compare them to long-term averages. There, we're not at a at a bottom in the market. There mm-hmm. isn't blood in the streets. It's not the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Everything isn't dirt cheap, but we think that it's appropriate that they're normal because mm-hmm. the outlook is pretty solid mm-hmm. and. We see that that individual sectors in the in the U.S. are cycling, and by and large, they cycle. Maybe a few companies in that sector will file for bankruptcy, but mm. most companies will come out the other side okay. And we expect the default rate kind of going forward to be in line with historical averages. You might have a, a, a short period where they're elevated, if some, if particularly some large issuers. Mm. Default. It's not so much that there's going to be a spike in the number of companies default. If it, if it just happens that some of the larger issuers mm. default, you'll have a reading that'll be a higher percentage default rate. What we do in this strategy is we, we find concentrated high conviction bets. Mm. And so we're not holding a hundred percent of the names in the index. Yeah. We're not holding businesses that don't have. Those core credit qualities that we're looking for, durability cash flow and downside protection. And so when you marry a concentrated high conviction approach with a really good diligence capability, we think you could have great outcomes even when the overall spread available in the market feels about normal, which is which is how it feels now.
0: Yeah, makes sense. And I guess as a follow-on to that, in terms of being a high conviction strategy, you know, an active manager, where is the relative value in the, yeah. the investment universe? So so the one of the things that we have really liked
1: is over the last let's say at this point, over the last three years, has been being invested in shorter duration names. So names that have near-term maturities especially in sectors that were disrupted by COVID. Mm. And we've seen a big opportunity in building large positions in these uh, loans and bonds and then approaching sponsors uh, to propose an extension Mm. um, on terms that we find favorable, And so, typically, these are typically we'll be buying these loans and bonds at a substantial discount to par. So maybe ninety cents of the dollar, ninety-five cents of the dollar, something like that. And then, as maturity approaches, we'll be engaging in dialogue with the sponsor to get often hundreds of basis points increase in the spread that they're paying Mm -hmm. us. So maybe they were paying us silver plus three fifty. That'll become silver plus five fifty, something like that. And then, typically, they pay us several points of upfront Mm. fees Mm. associated with it. All of those fees get passed on to our investors. We're not taking any of those fees ourselves. And and it creates just a really nice economic opportunity. It also creates a situation where we feel like we're really delivering value to the owner of the business. Mm. We're approaching them not as a, a sharp elbow, distressed credit hedge fund trying to take over their business, we're approaching them as a sponsor listen you have a yeah. maturity in a year or two mm-hmm. and you don't want that to become current you don't want that to be due mm-hmm. in just a few months you want to resolve it early if you engage with us we'll we'll give you a proposal to resolve mm-hmm. it early and so you're you won't have to as the owner of the business you won't have to worry about yeah. finding that capital at the last minute and so that's been that's been incredibly fruitful area for us over the last three or four years. Mm. Uh, I'd say through 2023, we we were starting to pivot to more what I would just describe as new issue loans. Those Mm. COVID disrupted loans, those are often loans that existed, loans and bonds that existed before COVID hit. So 2018, 2019 origination. Last year, we were starting to really prioritize some of the things that were newly originated in 2023. What I loved about that was that if you, if you bought a business in 2019 or 2020, a lot of those businesses were bought on the belief that rates were going to stay yeah. rock bottom for a really long period of time. If you bought a business in 2023 mm. and you borrowed money to do it, you, you knew that rates were going up. And so you built a capital structure that was fundamentally more mm. conservative mm. because you knew that you were going to have to pay a lot more interest. Yeah, And so we found that to be a, a really good opportunity. We also invest in some structured credit products where we have embedded in the structure a lot of protection against defaults in underlying mm. portfolios. We really liked that last year. You could make investments in the structured credit space where what you were investing in would experience zero loss, even if there was 25% cumulative mm. losses in the underlying portfolio. Right. So that, that would be like a financial, the, the back GFC level of losses or yeah. beyond the GFC level of losses. And you were able to do that and earn SOFR plus 500, mm. which in today's, at today's sofa would be more than 10% and also had a little bit of appreciation potential embedded in there. So those are some of the areas that we've been more active in. I think that there's, and I, I think one of, the, one of the things that we've run this strategy now for 15 years, mm. this is a strategy that we started in 2008. We'll have our 16th anniversary of the strategy over the summer. And one of the things that's been great about the strategy is that you, know, you think about the range of mm. economic environments that we've had over that period. Mm. We caught the last year of the financial crisis when we started. So the mm. first things that we bought, it went down um, immediately. It was an incredibly difficult period. Then you had several years of, of real boom in the mm. credit market. Then in 15, 16, you had the energy sort of crisis in the U.S., oil price collapsed. Mm. A lot of those businesses were financed in loan and bond markets. We really outperformed in that period. Fast forward to COVID, Mm. recovery from COVID, change in Fed policy. You've had just incredible range of policies, Mm. macroeconomic environments, geopolitical events happening over that that 15, 16-year period. And so these are areas Mm. that we're focused on now. Mm. One of the things I would really emphasize is that we really view this as an all-weather strategy. We've had success with this strategy in a huge range of environments. And I think that's one of the reasons why... Mm. As whatever develops over 2024 yeah. and 2025, we approach it with a lot of confidence mm. uh, because of the range of environments that we've invested in.
0: Mm. I mean, I think that's really interesting, right? Because some people might see this as uh, you know having a place in part of the allocation for portfolios in fixed income, but you're delivering total returns of nine, ten percent, basically. In line with or above uh, what equities have typically done, but you've got security. You rank higher in the capital structure. A lot of it is paid coupons in distribution as opposed to price and getting that price volatility. I think it's a really compelling asset class for investors because if you do think that we're in that higher longer regime, if you do think there's going to be black swan big macro events that are unpredictable, and we seem to be getting more and more of them from conflicts and geopolitical issues and so on, do you take? perhaps a more consistent path to achieve those objectives, which you can arguably do in global credit. One thing I wouldn't mind asking is, you mentioned that for the past several years, I mean, you've been pretty short duration. Is that changing now that perhaps we're getting towards what seems like the end of elevated inflation? It looks like it's coming down in the US, in Australia. What's your view on that? When you say higher for longer, does that mean we're still going up from here? Does that mean yeah. maybe we come back down a little bit, but yeah. stay elevated? And how are you positioned? I
1: would say that I don't see a, a huge change in our duration positioning. We, we do not think that rates are going to continue to go up. We do think that rates are going to come down on the margin. We think that it's less than what the market thinks. Mm-hmm. Last week, last I looked at my Bloomberg, I think the market's pricing in five cuts mm-hmm this year i think we're sort of in the 2 to 3 camp yep. back half loaded i don't see that rates are going i don't I, I guess i don't believe that we are going back to zero interest rate policy and if we're not going back to zero interest rate policy that that would really be the the case for loading up on bonds on longer duration adding a lot of duration to the portfolio I also would say that I think that this strategy really succeeds based on the individual credits Mm -hmm. that we're identifying. And we don't want the strategy to be about a macro call of zero Mm -hmm. interest rate policy. We want the strategy to be about we've identified businesses that are out of favor by the market and Mm -hmm. we've done our work and validated durability of cash flow and downside protection. And so we've leaned into them. And so we see a lot about that, those opportunities in the loan market. The loan market is floating, so it always has short duration. We'd love to be more invested in bonds at the margin, but I don't see that as a sea change in terms of a duration position.
0: In terms of each category of global traded credit, I mean, what is the highest conviction view right now? Across leverage credit, We really like what we're seeing
1: in in structure credit in particular. We like that ability to invest in tranches that can withstand a large number of defaults and still earn great great spread. That's been an area of continued interest. That asset class had a great run last year. It can't replicate just sort of the fact that it appreciated as much as it did last year means it can't be replicated this year but we think that's gonna be a cont- continue to be a good place to add spread to the portfolio without taking a lot of risk. Yeah. Um, especially if you monitor those, those investments very closely, which we do. I think that we continue to see a lot in loans that we like. I think that I described this kind of rules-based activity that exists in all of these uh, areas. And I see that as in many ways, Strongest mm. in loans, the largest percentage of the buyer base is is acting according to rules, ratings rules, and spread rules, other rules that they have, and so we see that creating opportunity in,
0: tr- in how mm. things price. And why is that? I mean, is that that you've got a lot of passive money out there that are kind of governed by whether it be kind of index, type yeah, yeah, managers? I mean- is it they don't have the resources or the the human? Capital that KKR has. I mean, what what's the reason? It seems seems like why lazy why is yet. there yeah why are there why do
1: they invest according to these rules? <laughs> really, really, what it is is that in the CLO market because the CLO CLOs are the largest investors in loans, and in order to get the ratings of the different tranches of the CLO, there's a A rating down to a double B rating and then mm. a residual. In order to get all of those asset classes rated according to what they want. They have a percentage of triple C that they're allowed to hold. They have an over-collateralization mm. test that they have to meet. They have a, an interest coverage test. Basically, there has to be mm. enough interest coming into the structure to pay all of the underlying tranches of debt. And so just the complexity of mm. the CLOs means that they agree to a lot of rules. And then specifically, you have, I'd say, the top 10 managers of which we are one that have really strong access mm. to the market to create new CLOs. But then you have a huge tail of managers. There are over 100 managers of CLOs in the market. You have a huge tail of managers that have a much more tenuous mm. ability to access the market. And what we see among those managers is that when they start to experience downgrades in their mm. portfolio or, or actual credit losses, they act to protect mm. their ability to continue to access the debt market yeah. and so they they want to keep the portfolios clean and so they they sell first ask questions later mm. and we think that that just creates opportunity again and again and again and again as our own clo business has grown our understanding of mm. of all of these tests that are embedded Has gotten more sophisticated, and I think it makes us a better shopper of the assets that are available in the market because we really can see the things that start to trip up the CLOs, and you can see the price reaction. You can really focus your analytical capability on understanding those cash flows and whether or not they they are durable. Yeah, and so, but that that's the reason
0: why it exists. Yeah, and you mentioned within your own portfolio, I mean. portion of the CLOs that you hold will need to experience something like 25% in total accumulated or cumulative losses before there's any impairment to your yeah. capital. I mean, yeah. why is that? Is that because you've got obviously security behind it? Is that what would be kind of the quality or the ranking of those CLOs? Yeah. Where do they yeah sit? So,
1: so typically in, in that example, we're investing in the triple B rated tranche. It's got two tranches below it. It's got a double B and an equity residual piece. The combined value of the double B and the equity residual piece are about 12.5% usually. It varies within 1% of that, Mm. so sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. When I used when I cite that twenty-five percent, I'm assuming a fifty percent loss when mm. you have a default, yeah. which is historically when you what we've actually observed in loans is more like a thirty percent loss. Yeah. So even assuming a worse than historical mm. experience in terms of loss given default, you're incredibly protected. So mm. th- that's really why it is, is that there's there's twelve and a half percent of value below you. And so you have to have 25% mm. experiencing a default and then you have to have that 25% losing 50% of value wow. to get to the point where you've wiped out 12.5%. It just, it just hasn't happened. Yeah, One of the reasons why the CLO market uh, exists, the CLO market existed before the financial crisis as did many other structured credit markets. Most of those structured credit markets don't exist anymore. Mm. The CLO market still exists. Because it really rode through the financial crisis, the structures worked. A lot of equity investors actually did really well through the financial crisis, and so AAA investors all got their money back. It mm-hmm. sort of the the product performed as people expected it to, and so that's the reason
0: why. You mentioned the strategy has been running for roughly fifteen years or through the back end yeah. of way Reflecting across that time, because I know you've been with the firm for quite a long yeah. time, I mean something like twenty years. Yeah. Um, so you you're, you're there through the thick of it. Which have been kind of the vintages or rather than point to years, I guess the environments that have led to the best performing years for the strategy and, and what are the kind of drivers behind that? Our
1: biggest years of of alpha, our, our biggest years of outperformance have been years following the blood in the street moment. Mm-hmm. So coming out of the financial crisis in 2009, the bottom was really like March of 2009. But then mm. the second, third, and fourth quarter of 09 were an incredible rally. Coming out of 15, 16 the bottom was in February of 16. The balance of that year was really incredible. Coming out of COVID was really incredible. And then I'd say the sell-off associated with the Fed policy change was more muted than those other mm. three um but it was it was still significant and and we saw a really nice outperformance over the course of last year as the market recovered from that disruption those moments have been the moments of of peak alpha but i think when you observe the the return stream over time it's not that the other moments haven't been good. Mm. It's just that that the the highest amount of alpha has been generated in the aftermath of those blood in the stream moments. I think the reason why those have been so such profitable periods for us is that this is a traded credit strategy and we mm. can rotate. And mm. we tend to keep the portfolio relatively short. So we might not have as much price volatility in the sell-off as the rest of the market. And so what we're able to do is we're able to pivot from assets that we were holding before the sell-off hit, into the things that we think the market is really just giving that have the most upside potential on market normalization, and and that's really a big reason I, I gave the example of of using the COVID disrupted names mm. earlier. That's one of the reasons why we like those so much is that you, know, you could you could see those businesses normalizing, but the market wasn't giving credit for it, and you could buy them at incredibly discounted levels. And, and just take advantage of the fact that activity in the world was resuming,
0: mm. and, but it was just going to take some time for it to fully resume. Following on from that. So the best vintages is, is, as you put it, when there's blood on the street, when people are really underappreciating quality or kind of doing the work, the due diligence to find the good quality assets. Are we there yet? Because some people would arguably say that we haven't seen an uptick in defaults to a level because there was a lot of easy money from earlier yeah. years, and there's still a number of maturities that haven't rolled over yet. So I guess you've probably got quite a bit of capital you know, on the sidelines waiting for something to get worse. But I guess there's no certainty over will things get worse or how worse or will they get better? Or do, we, do we get rate cuts and other questions? So, I mean, what what would be kind of your answer to that for people that are wondering? do I wait for things to potentially get worse?
1: I want to be clear. there There is not blood in the streets right now. This is not the financial crisis. <laughs> this is not COVID. This is a normal environment. And that's mm-hmm. why I think that that's why one of the things that I was highlighting was that this is not our moment of the absolute peak amount of alpha that we'll generate yeah. because we're not at a moment where there was just blood in the streets. But this is a, this is a moment where we absolutely will thrive and we yeah. absolutely have thrived over many, many moments exactly like this over the last 15 years. And so I think that that's that's the opportunity today. For a lot of investors, I would also say that a lot of investors intellectually want to invest. They prefer to invest at the moment when there's blood in the streets. Observing people's behavior over a long Mm -hmm. period of time, that is a really hard Mm -hmm. moment to invest at. Mm -hmm. Um, it's really hard when when everything in your portfolio is marked down. You go back to think about the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Think about how much equities went down, how much credit assets went down, how much fixed income assets. People were questioning the value of just of traditional mm-hmm. fixed income assets, and it's hard it's hard to put incremental capital to work in that moment. And so this is a, a nice moment where there's relative calm in the market. I think there's a lot of ways for us to earn terrific returns yeah. over the next handful of years in a, a more normal economic backdrop. And it's not a blood in the streets moment, but it, it, that's also to people's benefit because it's a little bit easier to pull yeah. the trigger.
0: Yeah, yeah. I notice so within the portfolio, within the strategy, there's a, you know, sleeve or a component that can be allocated, you know, to opportunistic yeah. credit. What fits that or fills that bucket? And if times are normal, I guess you're waiting for times to not be normal to kind of exercise or utilize that. Would that be a fair comment? Yeah, look, I think that that really, I mean, this is a a, a very flexible strategy
1: and when we occasionally will see really unique opportunities in the market, it, it might be to participate in something that's a little bit more clubby. So it's a, a there's a little bit less liquidity in it, but it's a really high quality with a really high return. It could be dipping into alternative asset classes. Today in structure credit, we're really focused on CLO tranches, and we like the defensibility of that. If you go back to much earlier in the history of the strategy, we did a lot in aircraft ABS mm. coming out of the financial crisis because there were, there's a lot of disruption to the, in terms of the, the value of, of aircraft assets. Mm. And you could, you could really invest for high return there. So I think that we think of that, that bucket as when we do, do things a little bit outside of our normal day to day strategy, which is loans, bonds, and structured credit. And, um, you know, it has to be an extraordinary opportunity, either at, at a moment in time or just a really interesting risk reward mix. Yeah. But uh,
0: that's what that's what we use it for. One final question. I mean, for investors, for clients of our firm that are listening, how should they be thinking about this strategy and where does it fit across portfolios? I mean, should it be part of the fixed income sleeve? Should it be a substitute for equities in more volatile conditions? On a relative basis, how does it compare to other parts of fixed income? What would be kind of your, um, you know, not recommendation but suggestion? And how are some of your institutional investors thinking about that? Everybody's portfolio is a,
1: a spectrum from government bond, theoretically no risk, to to equities, high risk. This definitely bar, has elements of each. I think one of the you know interesting things of the last couple of years with the change in central bank policy globally, is that there's been a lot of price volatility in what we're historically thought of as the really safe assets. Mm. And so I think that, in some, that we experienced less price volatility mm. in this because we didn't have that embedded incredibly long duration. And then when the market is recovering, um, we can deliver really high returns, much much closer to what we do in equities. So I would I would say that it's it's definitely a hybrid. Mm. We see we see institutional investors borrowing from kind of return seeking fixed income mm. allocation. So they might be thinking about something private credit where they're seeking a higher return. Mm. This can fit in that same bucket. Yeah. Um, when people are more skittish about equities. There's a lot being written right now about just how high valuations are in equities mm. and what is the return outlook from here, especially if you don't get central banks priming the pump with um, yeah. lower rates. I think that in a moment like this, it could make a lot of sense to borrow from mm. an equity bucket to have something that's generating you know regular income and yeah. um, using that income as a little bit of a buffer on your, your overall return stream.
0: Jeremiah, great to have you in the office today and uh, I know you've flown straight over from San Fran so thanks for making the effort and uh, a lot of great takeaways for our clients so appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me.